Welcome to the program. I'm Jeff Sheckman. Tune into the news any day, and there's lots to lose sleep over. Not the least of which is the worry that if we're not sleeping correctly, we'll age faster, increase our risk of Alzheimer's, and get a whole host of other illnesses that are related to not getting enough sleep. It's hard to imagine that with all the other crises going on, how much time and conversation gets devoted to the subject of sleep. It must mean that maybe it's pretty important. At least my guest, Matthew Walker, thinks so. He's the director of UC Berkeley's Sleep and Neuroimaging Lab and professor of neuroscience at UC Berkeley. He's also an award-winning neuroscientist and leading expert on the subject of sleep and the author of a new book entitled Why We Sleep, Unlocking the Power of Sleep and Dreams. Matthew Walker, thanks so much for joining us. Oh, it's a delight to be with you. Thank you. Great, great to have you here. We do spend a lot of time, a lot is written, a lot of conversation takes place about the subject of sleep. Why is it so important? But more importantly, why now? Why has this come into focus so profoundly recently? Well, I think there has really been a perfect storm. Um, Over the past 30 years, we've made remarkable strides in our understanding as to what sleep is, what happens when we get it, and the demonstrable impairments that happen when we don't get enough. So the knowledge base and the science of sleep has escalated dramatically. What has happened during that time, sadly, however, is that the amount of sleep that we're getting throughout the developed world, in fact, has declined dramatically. And now we're starting to realize that every major disease that is killing us in first world nations has significant and causal links to a lack of sleep. So I think that perfect collision in terms of understanding what sleep is, together with the pernicious erosion of sleep time across the past 30 or 40 years, really now brought sleep into sharp focus and and was the motivation uh, to write the book for me, in fact. It used to be that it was a status symbol not to get much sleep. (laughs) I think it still may be Uh true. Um, I think people, some people in certain uh, professions or spheres feel as though it's important to perhaps brag about how little sleep that they're getting. And I think that that's for two reasons. Firstly, we have done a terrible disservice to sleep uh, in society. Sleep has an image problem. Mm -hmm. Um, We chastise people who get sufficient sleep as being lazy or being slothful. And therefore, it's a shameful thing that we get sufficient sleep. I think that's one issue. I think the second is that people peg a remarkable um, sort of value on trying to seem as though they are important in this day and age, very understandably so. And one way that you can demonstrate how important you are is to demonstrate how busy you are. And one way to show how busy you are is to describe how little time you have for sleep. And so I think Describing how little sleep you're getting is a way of describing perhaps how important you must be because you just don't have time to get sleep. And I think that that's true for some people, not all people, but for some people as well. The other side of that is a sense sometimes that all of this talk about sleep and its relationship to disease, to health, to so many other things, that it is a little bit like diets, that it's a kind of fad that we're going through right now, the sleep fad, if you will. You, you could imagine that, but I think that's where the 30 or 40-year bedrock of science comes into play. I think perhaps unlike the field of nutrition or dieting, the science has remained constant regarding sleep. 
and it only escalates and grows and reaffirms rather than it seems to sort of suggest, okay, this diet is good for this amount of time and then, no, sorry, we're going to change up. We didn't mean that uh, fat is bad, fat is good, sugar is bad, etc. It's It's really not like that in the sleep field. Uh, there is remarkable consistency. And so I think that's why this foundational element of sleep is not going away anytime soon. Talk a little bit about what has enabled us from a technological perspective to advance the science to better understand what goes on with and without sleep. We have remarkable brain science techniques now that have really unlocked the science of human sleep specifically. Uh, scientists were able to do all sorts of uh, interesting experiments in with rats and mice, as lots of science do, but it's really the science that... Um, has been focused on the human brain, and that's the science that I do specifically, because we've been having this um, gift of brain imaging technology provided to us with MRI scans. We can look deep inside the brain. We can watch what happens during sleep, which parts of the brain are switching on and switching off. We can also look to see how the brain and the body become impaired when you're not getting sufficient sleep. We've been doing a lot of brain imaging studies looking at how the brain changes when it is deprived of certain types of sleep or certain amounts of sleep. And we also measure all aspects of your body, your cardiovascular health, your immune system, even genetics. We can now look at how um, specific genes are modified in terms of their activity profile in human beings when you're not getting sufficient sleep. So it's this explosion of uh, molecular, cellular, and, and whole brain science that has helped us unlock the mysteries of sleep. Do you think that the medical profession in general has taken this seriously enough? Unfortunately, I don't think that they have. And we can ask the question, why? Why is it that one of the first questions that your doctor asks is, you know, how are you sleeping? And then understands what that means. Um, we can ask, why aren't doctors prescribing a good night of sleep? Because Sleep is the Swiss army knife of health. Uh, you know, whatever you face, it's more than likely that sleep has a tool in its box that will be remarkably beneficial. So why aren't doctors uh, cognizant and mindful of this? Well, in truth, if you look at the medical education curriculum that our, our young junior doctors um, are taught with, they actually have remarkably little uh, education regarding sleep, a small fraction of their curriculum is dedicated to sleep, yet despite the fact that one third of the time of their patients will be spent in this thing called sleep. So I would argue that we should at least have, you know, a one third bias of the medical curriculum to sleep relative to the two thirds bias to all of the other things that happen whilst we're awake. Why does there seem to be such inconsistency in the amount of sleep people claim to need. Some people feel like they need a lot of sleep. Some people, even if they're not using it as, as the status symbol to prove <laughs> how busy they are, they just don't seem to need as much sleep. Firstly, there is uh, some degree of variability, and it's very much like calories. I could tell you that you know, for the average adult male, the recommendation is 2,000 calories. But based on the size and the shape and the physical activity and the physiology of any one individual, that will vary some degree around that recommended mean amount. 
Um, however, the amount of variability in sleep that we see across the population far exceeds that small wiggle room around the recommended mean, which is eight hours of sleep each night. So people are sleeping um, mostly far less than is necessary. Why is that? Well, I think one of the reasons, unfortunately, is because your subjective sense of how you think you're doing when you're not getting sufficient sleep is a miserable predictor of objectively how bad you're doing with insufficient sleep. Um, in other words, it's a little bit like a drunk driver at a bar where they've had you know, five or six shots, they pick up the keys and they say, I'm fine to drive. And your response is, no, I know that you think you're fine to drive, but trust me, objectively, you're really not. And it's the same case for, for a lack of sleep. We don't truly understand um, we are sleep deprived when we are sleep deprived because our perception is not very good. Is there an objective way that people can, can measure that to understand that? There is. We have a gold standard set of assessments. Um, it, it's perhaps not quite there yet, but it's a little bit like a breathalyzer for alcohol um, should you be over the limit. There is a cognitive test that assesses your ability to sustain your focus, your concentration for several minutes as you're responding to objects on the screen. And that test turns out to be remarkably sensitive, not only to whether you are completely sleep deprived or not, but also just small degradations of sleep, maybe just two hours of lost sleep, three hours of lost sleep. Um, as you scale back sleep hour by hour by hour, your performance on this task degrades in this kind of consistent uh, linear relationship. So it's a very good test assessment of how much sleep that you've been having. What about the banking of sleep? The idea that you can be sleep deprived for a period of time and then sleep a lot, store it up, and then uh, go about your business. This is one of the myths that unfortunately I have to uh, dismantle and I do do in the book. Um, there is no credit system for sleep. I mean, I, I, I agree. Wouldn't it be lovely if we could bank up and store sleep so that we could sort of use it when we go into a debt phase? But there is no capacity of the brain or the body to, um, to sort of pay off uh, that debt. Um, sleep is not like the bank. You can't accumulate that debt and then pay it off at the weekend uh, by trying to oversleep. Um, if I sleep deprive you, I would say, however, for a whole night, in the subsequent nights, you will sleep more, you will sleep longer, but you never get back that full eight hours that you've lost. We could then ask the question, well, why? Why hasn't Mother Nature developed that special brain cell, for example, that can bank uh, up all of that sleep when we get the chance to get it? Because there is precedent in the body. Uh, there is a cell called an adipose tissue cell or a fat cell. And there were times in our evolutionary past when we would go through feast and famine. And we developed a system to store caloric credit, to store energy credit, mm -hmm. so that we could undergo periods of famine and pay it off with this credit of calories that we built, uh, built up. So why don't we have that for sleep? The answer is very simple. Human beings are the only species that deliberately deprive themselves of sleep for no apparent gain. And what that means is that Mother Nature has never had to face the challenge of sleep deprivation throughout the course of evolution. And therefore, Mother Nature has no safety net in place. She has no 
uh, sort of sleep credit cell within the brain that she's designed to get us through those periods when we don't get enough. Is the other side of that true, though? As we, as a modern society, get less sleep for reasons of being busy, reasons of technology, just reasons of of life in the 21st century, certainly in, in the first world, will evolutionary biology kick in at a certain point and lead us to a point where eight hours sleep is simply a notion from the past? I think that that's very unlikely. It took Mother Nature 3.6 million years to put this thing called eight hours of sleep in place. And that was for, and now we understand, a whole collection of brain and body health reasons, necessary, obligate, absolute reasons. Now, you could also say that if Mother Nature had found any shortcut to even shaving off just 30 or 40 minutes of that, um, that certainly would have happened because sleep is a desperately idiotic thing to do from a survival perspective. You know, you're not reproducing, you're not finding a mate, you're not gathering resources, you're not finding food, and worst of all, you're vulnerable to predation. So on any one of those grounds, if we could have done away with sleep, if it was somewhat flexible in terms of the amount, it would have been lost long ago during the course of evolution. So I truly don't see sleep going away anytime soon in terms of that non-negotiable eight-hour opportunity each night. Mm-hmm. Talk a little bit about why eight hours. What, what, what does science tell us about the eight-hour mark? What we know is that firstly, once you get below seven hours of sleep each night, we can measure objective impairments in your brain and your body. So your immune system starts to implode by way of insufficient sleep. Your metabolic system, your ability to regulate your, for example, your glucose starts to deteriorate. We also know that your cardiovascular system starts to go into overdrive and you become hypertensive. You have a far higher risk of stroke as well as heart attack. Upstairs in the brain, we know that um, insufficient sleep leads to your um, impairments in your learning, in your memory. You become emotionally erratic and emotionally hyperactive. We also know that it is during sleep that you actually clear out all of the metabolic toxins within the brain that have been building up during the waking day. And one of those toxins is a sticky protein that is directly associated with Alzheimer's disease. Um, And that is a protein called beta amyloid. And that's the reason we now know that insufficient sleep across the lifespan is one of the most significant lifestyle factors determining whether or not you will get Alzheimer's disease. It's that the evidence is that strong. So what we're understanding in response to your question is that we require eight hours of sleep and we require all of the different stages and the different types of sleep that must get packed into that eight hour opportunity each night to prevent all of those deleterious brain and body health or ill health and disease and sickness consequences. To what extent is any of this reversible or changeable if you've gone through a significant portion of your life getting five or six hours sleep a night and and have had arguably metabolic damage as a result, to what extent is any of that reversible if you suddenly started sleeping eight hours a night? It is a good question. And for the whole collection of different benefits that sleep provides, we have not yet worked out which of those are um, reversible 
or which of those are not reversible. So, you know, it's a little bit like asking the question, if you've been a smoker all of your life and you stop smoking, how long does it take before your respiratory system and your cardiovascular system, um, how long is it before they recover? Um, it's a little bit unclear, but what we do know, there was one study looking at older adults and their risk for dementia and cognitive decline. And they were looking at those individuals who had a sleep disorder called sleep apnea, which is where your breathing becomes disturbed and um, it's heavy snoring, essentially. And they diagnosed these individuals and they put them on a treatment and then they tracked them. And what they found is that those individuals who adhered to that treatment and corrected their sleep problem ended up staving off the onslaught of dementia for up to 10 years relative to those who received treatment but didn't adhere to that treatment. So I give it as just one slightly um, indirect piece of evidence to say that it's perhaps never too late that if you correct your wrongful ways of sleep or if you correct a sleep disorder that you're having, you can still gain market benefit by that course correction in your sleep. Tell us a little bit about kinds of sleep. Is it all sleep the same, or is there a difference depending on the individual, and is some sleep better than others? <laughs> I'll take the last question first. Is some sleep better than others? Well, in terms of the different types of sleep or the different stages of sleep, we know that we need all of those stages of sleep. Um, and I'll come back to what those stages are in, in just a minute. Um, I would get to your question, though, which is another way of looking at that. Are all types of sleep important? We know that if you're getting, let's say, um, eight or nine hours of sleep, but that, that sleep is very fragmented or very shallow because, for example, you're taking sleep medications which don't produce naturalistic sleep, then that eight hours of fragmented or shallow sleep is not going to give you the same benefit as eight hours of healthy naturalistic sleep which sort of is a slightly different way of answering your question. To come back to what types of sleep that we have, human beings actually have two principal types of sleep, what we call non-rapid eye movement sleep or non-REM sleep and rapid eye movement sleep or REM sleep. And those two types of sleep will actually play out in this delightful sort of battle for brain domination throughout the night and that cerebral war between non-REM and REM is won and lost every 90 minutes, and it's replayed every 90 minutes. And that produces this standard 90-minute cycling architecture of sleep throughout the night. You first go down into non-REM sleep for about 70 or 80 minutes, and then you'll pop up and have a short REM sleep period. And then down you go again, down into non-REM, and then up into REM. What's interesting, however, is that across the night, the ratio balance of non-REM to REM sleep within each of those 90-minute cycles changes in the first half versus the second half of the night, such that in the first half of the night, the majority of those 90-minute cycles will be comprised of lots of deep non-rapid eye movement sleep and very little REM sleep. Yet as you push through to the second half of the night, that teeter-totter balance actually shifts over, and now you have much more rapid eye movement sleep, which is associated with dreaming, and very little deep non-rapid eye movement sleep. And we truly don't understand why there is that 
sort of strange imbalance across the night. It remains one of the uh, great mysteries of sleep. Does sleep aggregate? If you get, you know, an hour from a nap, and can you apply that to the the eight (laughs) hours later? Um, There is evidence that that may actually be true as long as you're consistently doing it. It's not as though you could, let's say, sleep for 12 hours one night and then only get away with four hours the next night because, again, you sort of banked four hours in addition. Mm -hmm. However, within a single 24-hour period, trying to get that eight hours of sleep by, let's say, seven hours at night and a one-hour nap during the day actually may be just fine. You can't start to split it too much more, though. You can't be um, going on what some people call the Uberman uh, schedule, where you're sleeping for 45 minutes and then you're awake for three hours and another 45 minutes. And that There is no evidence that we are designed to sleep that way, and there is good evidence that it does you uh, a disservice and biological harm. What's also interesting regarding your question, though, comes back to the issue of naps. We know, and we've done this work in my own sleep center, that naps do give a benefit to both learning and memory and emotional regulation as well as body uh, benefits, physiological. Um, There is a slight danger with naps, though. It's a double-edged sword. If you are someone who struggles with getting to sleep at night or staying asleep at night, the advice is that you should not nap during the day. Because when we sleep at night, we release all of that healthy sleepiness that we've been building up throughout the day. And you need lots of that sleep pressure to fall asleep and stay asleep at night. So if you take a nap during the day, especially if you take it too late in the afternoon, you're going to release some of that sleepiness that's been building up and it will be that much more difficult to fall asleep or stay asleep at night. So if you can nap regularly and you don't have problems with sleep at night, then the advice is you should, naps are just fine. But if you do struggle with sleep, it's probably best to avoid naps. Of course, the other part of that is that you can read lots of different advice on how long naps should be, anywhere from 90 minutes to 10 minutes. You can, and it, in some ways it really depends on what you want from that nap. A 10-minute nap is really not going to give you some of the deep brain and body but benefits. It won't help necessarily with learning and memory. It won't necessarily help reset your cardiovascular system. But what it would do is actually provide just a shaving off of that drop in your concentration, your your basic alertness. It can give a little bit of um, uh, re-energizing of your alertness. But anything past that, a 10-minute nap is really not going to provide. Some people find that once they get past maybe 30 or 40 minutes, they wake up with what we call sleep inertia, or the more lay language term is a sleep hangover, mm-hmm. where you actually feel groggy and you feel right. almost worse for the next hour when you wake up because your brain thought, oh, I'm, I'm off into many cycles of sleep. So you can perhaps cut it short a little bit. Um, but the best advice is, are you feeling as though you are um, rested and alert throughout the day? Could you function without needing caffeine? Um, would you sleep past your alarm if you didn't set it? If all of those things uh, tend to be true, then the likelihood is that you're not getting sufficient sleep. Um, so that would be my advice. If you could very easily sleep past your morning alarm, I think that that's my one single question for determining whether or not you're getting sufficient sleep. 
And if the answer is, um, yes, I would sleep past my alarm, then it's more than likely that you're not getting sufficient sleep. To what extent does the eight hours have to do with age? Do you need less or more sleep as you age? There has been a long-standing myth that as we get older, we just need less sleep mm-hmm. because what we see is that older adults don't get the same amount of sleep as young adults. Um, they tend to get maybe on average six or six and a half hours of sleep. Sadly, and this is another thing that the book addresses head on, that's not true. Older adults, we now know, need just as much sleep as young adults. The issue is that older adults, and specifically the older adult brain, is not able to generate the sleep that it necessarily still requires and needs. So the issue is not a reduced need for sleep. The issue is a reduced ability to generate the sleep that is still necessary. To what extent is sleep prescriptive in terms of illness or whatever the physical problem might be? Sleep is highly prescriptive. It is quite a, um, a disease predictor, and some people are starting to use it almost as a biomarker mm. of certain conditions. It's that um, reliable. And in fact, in numerous disorders, for you to get to receive a diagnosis of that disorder, you will actually have to have some kind of sleep abnormality. A good example of this would be depression or PTSD. Um, it's very difficult to receive those diagnoses if you don't report having some kind of a sleep problem. Um, we also know that it is just generally predictive of disease and ill, Ill health. Um, and it doesn't take very long. For example, the studies have demonstrated that if I take you and I short sleep you for just one week, let's say I put you on five or six hours of sleep for one week, your blood sugar levels are so disrupted by the end of that one week that your doctor would classify you as being pre-diabetic. We also know, for example, that um, it just takes one hour of lost sleep to have a marked impact. And the cardiovascular system is a good example because there is a global experiment that is performed on 1.6 billion people twice a year across 70 countries, (laughs) and it's called daylight savings time. And in the spring, when we lose one hour of sleep, there is a 24% increase in heart attacks the following day. Yet in the fall, when we gain an hour of sleep opportunity, there is a 21% decrease in heart attack rates. So that's how fragile and vulnerable and predictive that insufficient sleep and even just one hour of lost sleep can be for, for example, our cardiovascular system. What is the impact then of global travel where you uh, get on a plane and and get off, you know, 12 hours later and your body thinks it's a completely different day, much less different time? We can mimic uh, artificial jet lag in the laboratory. We cut you off from all external cues and we start to manipulate your sleep schedule as if you were going through jet lag. And you can see very immediate um, deleterious health consequences on all of the areas that we've spoken about, the immune system, the cardiovascular system, the metabolic system, as well as your cognitive capacities too. What are the long-term consequences of that? Well, we also know the sad answer because people have studied Um, cabin crew um, Mm -hmm. uh, individuals as well as pilots and what they found is that those individuals tend to suffer a form of brain damage that there is a part of their brain that is 
particularly critical for learning and memory, a region that we call the hippocampus, that is actually shrunk in size because of toxic damage to the brain cells that have killed them. And it scales. Um, the longer that they've been working those types of ir irregular um, long-haul flight pattern shifts, the worse the damage is. Um, and we also know that the longer the long-haul flight, the worse the damage is. We also know that um, cabin crew um, individuals, particularly women, have a far higher risk of breast cancer as a consequence of that, what is effectively nighttime shift work. And a group of individuals who were conducting nighttime shift work, such as uh, long-haul flights, um, actually took the Danish government to court and they actually won their battle and they received compensation due to their high risk of breast cancer because of nighttime shift work. And it's for all of those reasons, because of that science, that recently the World Health Organization classified any form of nighttime shift work as a probable carcinogen. Can we train ourselves in some way to need less sleep? No, we can't. There is no evidence that an individual through either just exposure on the job, for example, doctors saying that I, I've just, you know, I'm now resilient, I've got used to this, and there is no evidence for that. Um, there's no evidence that your willpower can actually overcome sleep. Um, I think it's just hubris to think that we can battle back this, um, this edict that Mother Nature, um, through millions of years of evolution, put in place. Um, the hard truth of the fact is simply this, when you fight biology, Biology usually wins, and you usually lose. And the way that you use, uh, the, sorry, the way that you lose um, is through disease, sickness, and and ill health, as well as higher rates of of mortality. Dr. Matthew Walker, his book is Why We Sleep: Unlocking the Power of Sleep and Dreams. Matthew, I thank you so much for spending time with us. Pleasure and delight. Thank you very much for having me. Thank you so much.